righty, as you're seated, let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're looking at uh, just a verse or two here, and we're going to go over to Isaiah chapter 11. So if you want to kind of be prepared to do that as well. And uh, remember, we're essentially developing Isaiah's contribution to our understanding of the end times, of how things are going to wrap up. Uh, we uh, sometimes I'll use the word eschatological or eschatology or all that good stuff. That simply is just what that is. It's the end times. So we have one session tonight and then one more, and then we'll be done. And we will then potentially return to themes in Isaiah at, at another point in time. So in our first in treatment of Isaiah's contribution to our understanding of the end times, we observed Isaiah essentially unpacking the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham's family would be a blessing to all nations. Isaiah teaches that blessing will be realized when Jesus changes the affections of all the nations to essentially like what he likes. Remember, that's what we really observed there, that the problem was in the affections of man, that he was more informed by influences from men from the East in his business practices and how they went about doing their life and this was problematic. And this was in part why the nation of Judah would be carried off into captivity. And it was in part the problem that the king, Jesus, would return and deal with. And we took that as something we can uh, be working on now, to learning to like what God likes, not just in mere declaration of loving God and appreciating all of his positional truth that we enjoy, uh, but we observe that every time the nation of Israel cried out to God with their positional truth, that, hey, we're your elect nation, we're the people you're supposed to like a whole lot, God would tell them, yes, I do very much, and uh, why then aren't your affections more geared toward the things I delight in? Remember, we, we observe that word. It's a word of affections. Uh, rather than being influenced from men from the east. And we essentially saw that in Isaiah chapter 2. So uh, we, we look at eschatological hope. Uh, what makes that such a hopeful time is that Jesus is going to change the affections of all of the nations to be his own. So we saw that, Genesis 12. In our second uh, time together, we observed Isaiah unpacking the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, we know that the Mosaic Law, as hopeful as it sounded, could never be the source of hope for the nations due to the fact that it was a, it was a sort of a, a two-party agreement. It required both parties to fulfill their obligations. Isaiah taught us, or teaches, that man's sinful nature is just that stubborn and committed to its own self-interests that any bilateral or, or two-party agreement between man and God would fall or collapse under the weight of man's sinful nature. It just, just would never work uh, as much as we wished it would or wished it could. And again, Isaiah points to a future day when instead of a bilateral thing, Jesus is going to do something unilaterally. 
and supernaturally. And remember, uh, in both those times together, we, we wanted to observe that end times is not fundamentally apocalyptic for God's people. End times is hope for God's people. We made that, that, that important um, observation. Um, tonight, um, we look at 2 Samuel 7, or, or really Isaiah's understanding and unpacking of the Davidic covenant. So the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and now the Davidic. And it stands as the backdrop of our study tonight in Isaiah. What the Davidic covenant prophesies in seed form, so think of a farmer, so you got somebody who puts in the seed, um, that's the Davidic covenant. Isaiah cultivates it, so somebody has to come along and water it and pull the weeds out and you know, make sure that the plot of ground still quasi looks like a garden and reminds people that there's a garden there and shoes the deer away from eating the little sprigs that are coming up. That's Isaiah's role. He cultivates. The church enjoys the beautiful bloom. We enjoy the bloom of uh, the Davidic covenant, the historic Jesus, the son of David in his first advent. The universe together awaits the rich fruit. So that bloom will one day come into full, lush fruit for the world, the full, lush fruit of salvation history, which is the glorified Jesus when he once again sets foot on this earth. The truth we want to focus on tonight is that the universal end times hope of all of the nations depends solely and exclusively on the coming of a person, of an individual, of a man. And that person is a king from the line of David. We're going to look at that from Isaiah's perspective. So the first thing we want to note from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, is this truth, is that this critical person has, a line, has the lineage to be a king. He has the lineage to be a king. We, these are famous verses. Uh, these are immortally... Um, uh, uh, remembered in Handel's uh, Messiah. Uh, a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And here's the key. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And it's the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. So, so this is left to no other uh, uh, servant, no other responsible party except for the zeal of the Lord. This is going to require a supernatural thing that only God can do. And uh, the zeal of the Lord will perform it. But we note here, first of all, uh, that he has a lineage to be a king because he governs this amazing peace from a throne. We see that. He's on a throne. We also see that he is over a kingdom. He has a right to rule. Uh, he will be from the royal line of David, his father. We, if we had time, we would note the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Uh, this prophecy here is 400 years before Matthew and Luke are penned. And uh, obviously Jesus fulfills um, to the greatest detail what Isaiah prophesies, that there would come one of the throne, or of, of, of the life of, of the son of David, uh, someone who could take the throne. 
So this king has the pedigree to rule. But in Israel, having the pedigree to rule is not enough. It's not enough. There were all kinds of people that had the pedigree to rule, who never should have, and ruled, and who never should have ruled. We would argue that the majority of the kings in the northern kingdom uh, did not have the right to rule. They were not Davidic kings. And, and uh, even ones in the southern kingdom, the ones who were of the line of David, some of them uh, were spurious because of our second point. They did not enjoy the anointing of the theocratic head in their life. And therefore, they had no right to rule. And we catch this in Isaiah chapter 11. Let's look there. This really becomes uh, one of the critical points about this individual, this person. He certainly has the pedigree to rule, uh, but that's not enough. Um, there are plenty of imposter kings. Uh, this king enjoys an anointing to rule. Uh, uh, we would argue this is a theocratic anointing. Uh, this is, uh, what we mean by that is God is the king. Uh, God the father, we would argue. And, and uh, throughout Israel's history, he would anoint with special endowment, special power, individuals to govern the kingdom. Uh, and even before the kings were around, the judges, many of them had the spirit of God come upon them and then leave them. That was a function that the spirit no longer does today. Uh, we enjoy spirit baptism today. That makes us all a part of the church. We don't enjoy theocratic anointing anymore. Uh, that's something that the Old Testament uh, covenant community enjoyed. Um, but we see this one is someone who enjoys this theocratic anointing. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. We know that shoot to be no one less than David himself. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And here it is, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is that theocratic anointing. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. And it goes on. Um, so this theocratic anointing will be evident in his spirit. It will be something that separates this one out from all of the others. It will rest upon him. Um, if we had time, we would take a moment or two to study the baptism of Jesus. And we would... Note that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And uh, we would understand that that is what the Old Testament Israelite would be looking for in a ruler. And they all observed it at Jesus' historic baptism. Now, that was a time when he enjoyed that theocratic anointing in preparation for his ministry. Not only is the theocratic uh, anointing evident in his spirit in the sense that he has wisdom and understanding, that's supernatural, that's above the normal wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge, these things are, are part of that reality that he will be the ruler, he will be the one endowed in a very supernatural way. We also see that this theocratic anointing is evident in the process of his decision making. Uh, we see that at the end of verse 2 into 3. 
And really what we want to do here, we made mention of the fact of Hezekiah. Remember, in Isaiah, Hezekiah is going to serve as a historic uh, illustration, really, of the nation of Israel in its first half. Uh, that she was successful for a while, and then she eventually caved uh, and, and was problematic. Uh, and remember, what we really observed is Hezekiah's dismissal of uh, the, the portion of the nation of Israel that would come after him. Remember uh, when, when the prophet came to him and denounced him for, for showing the Babylonians all of the wealth of his nation in hopes that they would somehow help him against the Assyrians? Uh, he was denounced for that. And, uh, but because he was a good king, uh, God said, during your lifetime it'll be okay, uh, but succeeding generations are going to have a lot of problems because of this Hezekiah, and it'll be all your fault. Remember what Hezekiah said? He essentially said, oh, well, at least during my day, it'll be okay. And he showed a huge disregard uh, for a love of God's people. But that won't be true of this ruler. Uh, this ruler is a ruler of an altogether better kind. His decision-making process is in contrast to Hezekiah's. Um, we see here counsel strength delighting in the fear of the Lord. He's, he, he, he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make decisions by what his ears hear. Uh, he will have the ability to see and know and understand the heart of man. Verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the poor. Think of that. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Uh, so this wonderful uh, anointing, if you will, Certainly, Jesus was God himself. He didn't need the anointing to have all of these qualities. The anointing was, is for our sake. It's for the sake of the nation of Israel. that They will identify him as, in fact, the truly uh, 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 anointed ruler of the nation of Israel. So it's evident there. Um, so... Another point that we want to see here is not only is the king enjoy the theocratic anointing to rule, not only is he a king, in, in fact, in his lineage, we see here in verse 4 of chapter 11 that he rules by the scepter of his mouth. Uh, now, this is an interesting phrase here in the Hebrew. It's called the rod of his mouth. Um, see there at the end of verse 4, and, he, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Um, uh, above that, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the scepter of his mouth, the rod of his mouth. Uh, he's going to rule in a way that no human ruler has ever been able to rule by before. Um, in the last few presidencies, we've had presidents who are trying to rule by the scepter of their mouth, by signing into executive order things that they want to see get done. And immediately those executive orders are, are, you know, are hailed as disastrous. The opposition party raises up. Uh, there's all kinds of doings that seek to frustrate it. And uh, the ruler is left frustrated himself. But this ruler, this king, uh, will not have any of those problems. Uh, when he issues a rule, a decree, when his mouth speaks, it will in fact be absolute and will be non-negotiable. His mouth will strike, Isaiah says. 
his breath will slay the wicked. In his resurrected glory, Jesus will speak them, he will simply breathe them, and they will be done. They will be done. There will be no debate, no negotiation. And as a result, in verse number five, uh, the non-negotiable nature of his word shapes his reputation. And one of the things we would fear if any human other than Jesus was in government and he had that kind of power, we would immediately think in terms of, 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 of oppression, right? Somebody using that power, they say absolute power corrupts absolutely and tyranny, but not so with Jesus. Look at what his reputation is as a result of the fact that everything he says will come to pass in that eschatological day. Verse number five, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his way. So far from fearing tyranny because Jesus has this kind of absolute power as the theocratic king, Instead, he will be one who rules with righteousness and with faithfulness. And this will be uh, the sum total of his reputation. Yeah, I think he wears a belt that's called righteous. He is so wonderful, he holds up his pants with faithfulness. That will be his reputation. I mean, that's a pretty good reputation. Uh, and what a joy, what a contrast to what uh, we experience here. You know, Jesus had a reputation in his first advent. Remember that reputation? Luke 2, 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Remember what Nicodemus said about Jesus? Jesus, we know you are a teacher and you have come from God. He had a reputation there. Remember the rich young ruler? He said, good teacher and and, and, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. Is that what you mean, I'm God? And if so, you're right. I'm afraid that's not what the rich young ruler meant, although he was good. Remember the man born blind was healed? Jesus had to leave his presence right away, so he really didn't know who Jesus was exactly, and he was oppressed and, and attacked by the Pharisees. And all he said is, I just know he's a prophet. And he said this, he said, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Never. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Saying, he must be from God. He must be. Remembering Isaiah 42, we had time, we, or we, we spoke of that last time, the fact that Jesus in his rule, uh, righteous and faithful, far from being tyrannical, in that passage it reminds us that he will not cry out or raise his voice. Wow. I mean, if you had the power of absolute uh, obedience by what you said, um, Jesus would never, will not raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. You know, we have officials who love to tweet. They want to be heard in the street. Uh, Jesus will need none of that. 
goes on to say, a bruised reed he will not break. Even though he has that power of decree. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Nothing, nothing will keep him from accomplishing that objective. So this person has a king's lineage. He has the very important anointing that is required. He reigns by the rod of his mouth. Fourthly tonight, he fills the whole earth with the knowledge of the Lord. This is uh, verses 6 through 9, and this is that favorite passage. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the fox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This king is busy about disseminating the most powerful of all change agents known to mankind. And that is the knowledge of the Lord. The greatest king who will ever rule on this earth realizes this fundamental truth, that it's the knowledge of the Lord that is the great change agent. You know, we actually see this effect in the church age when the gospel goes to places it has not been, to very pagan places. Just the very preaching of it, just the very living out of it by a few among many influences the social conditions of those people. They begin to dress a little differently. They begin to take care of themselves a little differently. They tend to become a little more civilized and less pagan, less dark, less twisting the image likeness of God in man. But in this case, in the case of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, vindication on earth is in an astronomically wide scale. The effect that this knowledge has is the drastic elimination of violent victimization. They're, the victims uh, uh, will, will cease to be. There will also be uh, uh, an amazing comprehensive result Produced in the reduction of the hostility in creation itself. Uh, talking about common grace. Talking about the power of the knowledge of the Lord as it rolls forth throughout the, 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 the social structures of the millennial kingdom. And it will have this powerful impact, not only on mankind, but on creation itself. And all of the hostility uh, will be removed. It will be removed, the text tells us, in all of my holy mountain. In the most basic sense, we would understand this to be uh, the mountain from which the king will rule, and we know that to be uh, Jerusalem. But if the Lord's universal kingdom is in view in this context, and I think it is, uh, then the phrase would probably be uh, just part of the whole. 
of what's going on across all of his rule. And then finally tonight, he once and for all vindicates himself and those who faithfully follow him. This is a, another attribute of the rule of the reign of the king. Verse 10, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Nations for the first time will resort to the root of Jesse, not necessarily to Jesse himself, but to the root, the very person of Jesus, who, of course, springs from Jesse. If there's a primacy of Israel in our understanding of the end times, there's a prime primacy on this king in Israel. He is no longer the despised, rejected, inconsequential man of Galilee. Those who follow him are no longer despised, inconsequential, and rejected either. People are going to, for the first time, seek the king. We see here uh, that the king is a signal. Uh, uh, the word here is who will stand as a signal for the people. Uh, the Hebrew here is he will stand like a signal flag for the nations. And nations will look to him for guidance. Think of that. <laughs> the one who they killed on Calvary. They now pursue him for guidance. How about you who have lived your life following the guidance of the king? Only to be viewed as sort of a little out of step, a little weird, a little different. Just so you know, in that day, you will be sought out if you follow the king. And you will be greatly vindicated. And ironically, I love this. This brought me to tears when I read it. It says here, and this resting place, and his resting place will be what? Do you remember Matthew 8, 20? What it said about our Jesus? when he was here the first time. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But Jesus, the king, has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere. But in that day, <laughs> his resting place will be glorious. Think about that. What a turn. The ironies are abundant. With this, we take great comfort and encouragement. The king is coming, my friends. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. The hope of the nation depends solely on the coming of a person, a king, somebody who's already walked this earth. He's from the line of David. Believer, what makes up your hopes and dreams? Are you seeking vindication today or tomorrow? Are you trying to just, just push all the time? Well, I'd recommend you stop doing that. Certainly live as a disciple-making individual, seeking to be light and salt as God overworks your character and presses you to become more like the king. Certainly, certainly do that. Isaiah wants us to expand and broaden 
our hopes and dreams immensely. He wants us to take every momentary feeling of either rejection or being put out, and he wants us to stretch that out over this eternal canvas of hope before you embrace that feeling and make any action on it. May God help to not just place the death of Jesus at the center of our hope. That's important, his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, his death deals certainly with the sin and guilt of today. But it is Jesus in all of his eschatological glory that pulls us through this world of decay and corruption. That's where our emotions are. That's where our hopes lie. It is not in this world today. And it's that that empowers the shaping of our affections to learn to love holiness and to enjoy the benefit of excellence in our life. So my friends, the king is coming. Diligently, intently prepare as you listen for the trumpet. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the fulfillment uh, that has already begun of the Davidic covenant. Now, that day when the lowly man of Galilee who came in his first advent will stand and rule from his throne in Jerusalem and the influence Lord is, is beyond our comprehension as all of the nations look to him and to those who follow him for help for guidance. In that day, uh, we will no longer be the minority faction in position. Uh, in that day, we will be the majority, the joyful majority, as we get to bring folks to Jesus. And uh, we look forward to that. So, Lord, as we are the church, we've been given a very simple task. Forgive us, Father, for seeking vindication. Uh, forgive us, Lord, for thinking that this life is all there is and living like it at times. Forgive us for that. Help us to remember that we're pilgrims. Uh, we've been given a very specific task, uh, and we want to be about the business of that task and help us to be faithful in doing so. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you. Jesus, we would love to see that day begin today, but we realize that you're very patient. We don't uh, count inactivity or slowness of God. No, we, we reckon the truth that, that you will that uh, none should perish and that all should come to repentance. And we recognize that in that day there will be horrific judgment. Judgment and hope are intimately wed due to the violent of our own sin nature. So, Lord, we understand your patience, but we confess we can't wait to see you, Jesus. Uh, we can't wait to worship you, to see your eyes and and to bow down at your feet, to do obeisance, because you are worthy of it, and to, to wash your feet with our hair like we were taught to do um, by Mary. So, Lord, um, we want to think this way. We want, we want to reckon these realities. Lord, give us the eye of faith. Clarify it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mr. I think.